Well, welcome to Big Sky Christian Fellowship. It's so nice to have all of you with us this afternoon. Can you guys think of any examples of things that we or you remember as being really great, but then when you revisit them, they tend to not be as good as you remember? Can you guys think of anything that fits that category? When I was a kid, my parents took my brothers and I to the state fair. And I remember a magical day with huge rides. We ate new and exotic foods. We got to pet animals. My mom was happy because there was a Kenny Rogers concert. For an eight-year-old, the state fair was like an amusement park, a zoo, a mall food court, and a concert venue all in one, all in one giant parking lot. I couldn't wait to go back. But then about 20 years later, I went back. Same state fair. I quickly realized that for most adults, those giant rides were actually really small and kind of sketchy and pulled in on a pickup truck in a trailer. Uh, the exotic food was stuff we had at home, but this deep fried. Uh, Kenny Rogers, this is, this is true, was still touring, was still playing <laughs> at the state fair. Suddenly it was bothersome having all those animals just kind of stinking up the parking lot. Can you guys think of something that you once held in high esteem, only to eventually decide that the memory or the ideal was, was much better than the present day experience? Um, I think this is a common human realization. I think everybody here with a little bit of time could give an example of something that we idealize more than our ongoing experience of support. And so this afternoon I want to talk about going to church. I want to talk about the idea of church. I want to talk about this church. And I think if we're honest, most of us would think that at times church fits into the same category. And Acts 2, the church is an incredible thing. People from different cultures are meeting together. They're learning things that change their paradigm and their worldview. They're sharing with those in need. And they're worshiping God and not wanting it to stop. It's so dynamic and it's so beautiful that thousands of people want to join in. Uh, but of course, that's not always our day-to-day experience. Sometimes, if we're honest, we skip church just to run errands. Sometimes we spend the whole hour hoping that a certain person doesn't talk to us. Maybe some weeks, and I apologize for this, the sermon is so boring you just can't stand being there. For everyone in this room, there's times when the experience of church is much, much less dynamic than this ideal that we read about in Acts chapter 2. So I want to spend the next 15 minutes studying this passage uh, and searching for answers why the church in Acts chapter 2 is so dynamic and sometimes church in our modern experience is flat or boring. Unfortunately, I think the Bible has the answers that we're looking for. So I want to study this problem and I want to study this passage in two parts. Uh, In section one, I want to talk about common problems with church life and the warnings that were given, even in the book of Acts. And then in section two, I want to talk about catalysts or change agents or suggestions from this very passage about how we can have you can have a more dynamic experience every week where you go to church. Uh, And yes, I realize we talked about the same passage last week. I think there's just so much in it uh, that's meant to transform our attitudes and our experiences. 
that's worth talking about it a little bit more. All right. Well, if Acts chapter 2 talks about the ideal of what a dynamic church can look like, I just want to point out that the rest of the book of Acts also foreshadows a little bit that we're not always going to get the ideal. And the book of Acts foreshadows some of the specific problems that we're going to experience. So we're talking about how church sometimes is less than the ideal. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York uh, City for many decades, and uh, he, he constantly remarked how many people were just opposed to the idea of church. He had a quote that said this, All the arguments against the existence of God, all the arguments against the existence of truth, even they do not create doubts in the heart like the church does. G.K. Chesterton says at best, the main argument against the truth of Christianity is Christianity. And that is all too often reality that frustrates and discourages uh, church people and non-church people to not want to enter in and take part of this and chase the ideal as presented to us. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I'll go through these really quickly. Uh, but we see uh, in our own lives, as well as in the book of Acts, that some people that are outside of the church, they distrust it and they hate it. Let's look really quick at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Again, this is just one chapter after the ideal that we're reading about. Uh, and it says this, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because of this evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Uh, again, that's just one chapter after the ideal that we're encountering, and it's telling us, it's foreshadowing in our day-to-day lives that there's going to be some people outside of the church that distrust it and they hate it. Sometimes when I'm uh, meeting somebody for the first time and we're having a conversation, the conversation inevitably changes, uh, moves to that question of what do you do for a living? And usually people are polite, but sometimes when I say that I'm a pastor, they, their eyes get big, like I'm horribly disfigured. And then they, and then they quickly look away. And uh, I always feel bad about that because there was something in their past, some sort of negative experience, it created a, a, a distrust towards the church. And we see even here in the book of Acts that we're going to encounter people with that mindset. What's another issue that we face that, that sort of makes accomplishing this dynamic ideal difficult? Well, we see that sometimes even people, if, if that's like people outside of the church that cause complications, sometimes people inside the church create complications and they try to rise inside the church with false motives and it creates confusion for everybody else. I'm not going to get into it too deeply right now, but in uh, the same book of Acts in chapter 5 verses 1 to 11, there's this couple. They're part of this group that we read about in today's scripture reading. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira and they're not completely villainous. They're giving money to the church. They believe in the church enough to give money to it. But they're not totally honest. They create a false ideal. They create a disturbance. And uh, they're disciplined severely for it. But again, this is just two chapters after this ideal that we're reading about. It would be so easy to stop reading your Bible in Acts chapter 2 and be like, oh, the church is always going to be dynamic. It's always going to be awesome. It's never going to disappoint us. 
even as we just read on one, two, and three chapters, we see that it is going to fall short of that dynamic ideal. Here's a final example. It says there's going to be confusion in the church as to how to follow God. Because previously, his, his presence was, was a holy and a hidden place. Like you got the tabernacle and you got the temple and the Old Testament. And God's presence was hidden and it was holy. But now, in this church age, we're transitioning into this new era where we are the ones that represent and carry God's presence out into the world. And I'm sure you can imagine there's going to be some awkwardness and some failure in that transition. Listen to what it says in Acts 7, 44 to 50. Um, I think this is Peter preaching again. Let me double check that. So this is Stephen preaching. He says this in Acts 7, 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. And after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations that God drove out before them. And it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so there Stephen is kind of explaining to this crowd that's not sure what's happening, but it was always God's plan that his presence would transition from a, a hidden and holy place to God's people, bringing that presence out to the watching world. And I'm sure that you guys can relate that sometimes we don't get that perfectly. I told you guys last week we were talking about that uh, the, the flames at Pentecost, right? And so in the Old Testament, God appears in flames in a lot of places. And it says here in Pentecost 2 that these flames appeared above the apostles' head. And it was this beautiful symbol that now God's hidden and holy presence is with us, and we take it out into the community. Uh, it was about three or four weeks ago when, uh, and I don't even remember the exact specifics. This doesn't happen a lot, I can assure you. But it was a rough day at the Larson house. I felt like my wife and my kids were not cooperating and that their lack of cooperation was going to keep us from accomplishing all the things that we had decided that we were going to do that day. Things got really rough and I was shouting and saying really rude things in my driveway. So I was loading up the kids for school, right? And all of a sudden I look over to my side and my barber, this 22-year-old kid who's a Christian and has come to our church a couple times, just looking at me with his mouth open. There's his pastor just saying terrible things to his wife and his kids. And in that moment, the flame goes out, does it not? We're no longer carrying God to the community that needs to see it. And you guys can laugh at me, but you probably have done similar you probably experienced similar things. So, you know, there's a problem with this ideal that we see in Acts 2. It's, we're, we're, it's foreshadowed. We're warned against it. But does that just mean that we stop pursuing the ideal? There was an uh, American novelist, Flannery O'Connor, she said she's a great Christian, and she said this, You don't serve God by saying the church is ineffective. I'll have none of it. Your pain at its lack of effectiveness is a sign of your nearness to God. 
I think that's really profound. When we feel that the church, this church, the church, is falling short of its ideal and its potential, that's a sign of our nearness to God. That's a sign that we're grieved that we're not doing what we're called to do. So I'd like to wrap up with two things that I think we see in Acts chapter 2 that are catalysts or agents of change or things that we can remember that help us come closer to that target and have a dynamic experience when we go to church. The first one is this. I'll give a couple examples. In Acts 2, Peter preaches a salvation that brings an ongoing transformation. So Peter is saying that when you become saved, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're saved. It's something that happens in that moment. But you'll never stop being transformed. And I think one of the problems with the modern church, and I'm a pastor, so like I'm pointing the finger at myself as well, but, but the problem is sometimes we think that once we become a follower of Jesus, the game's over, and we've won. Now we can just continue to stay the same. And that's really not what Peter is preaching to this first group, and that's not how they're responding. I want to ask you guys a question to, to, to think about in your mind. Is your, convert, is your conversion to a Christ follower just an event in your past? Or does it still impact your identity and your relationships? Did you become a Christian and you stop? Or did you both change and commit to ongoing change? Let me tell you a story that I think illustrates this in a way that at least moves me. In April of 1985, Thomas Kearns and Martin Hagler fought for the middleweight championship of the world in what a lot of sports players consider the greatest fight in boxing history. It only lasted three rounds, but it, 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 it was given the name of war. Call it the war because it was so brutal. Well, Thomas Hearns was a soft-spoken, tall kid from Detroit. And he started boxing because he was sick of getting his coat stolen. He got his coat, coats, like two or three different coats stolen. So he went down to the gym and said, I want to be a boxer. And he was really good at it. He was tall, he was lanky, he had this powerful right hook. He really felt like if he became the middleweight champion, he would be respected. Bullies would leave him alone. Uh, his identity would change. So in the first round, and he was thought of as having like the most powerful right hook of the whole decade. In the first round, he hit Marvin Hagler so hard in the face that he broke his hand. That, that's got to be uncomfortable for both fighters, right? Like, I don't know who got it worse. Well... Thomas Hearns was so tough that he kept fighting, even with his most powerful punching hand broken, because that's how badly he felt that winning the title would change his identity, it would change his past, it would change his present. The crazy thing is that his opponent, Marvin Hagler, wanted to be champion more, if you can believe it. He had been a new construction worker for eight years, he boxed like a guy who never wanted to go back at the end of the second round, blood was pouring down Hagler's face so profusely that they called over the ringside doctor because the ringside doctor has to decide if your vision is impaired, they stop the fight because it's too dangerous. And Hagler famously said to the doctor, do not stop this fight. Do not stop this fight. If you don't know what I'm fighting for, I'm prepared to die in the ring if that means the doctor didn't stop the fight. Hagler won with a third round knockout. He became wealthy. 
He retired from boxing and became a movie star. You might remember him from those deodorant commercials. He married a beautiful Italian woman. And winning that fight changed his future forever. And I think this creates an interesting construct to look at how so many of us Christians view our salvation, right? That first guy, winning that fight would have changed his past and his present circumstances. Bullies would respect him. He finally had the reputation as a really tough guy. And that gave him an incredible level of devotion. He kept fighting with a broken hand. But that other guy, that second guy, he believed that winning that fight would change his future, his past, present, and his future. And that gave him a superhuman level of focus and dedication. So I just want us to take a second to think about the moment that we decided to follow Christ. Was it a motivation that it would change your identity in the present? Would you like Marvelous Marvin Hagler, who was not a humble guy, he literally changed his name to Marvelous, so that everybody would say that, but I digress. Are you like that second guy who believed that everything would change, past, present, and future? And so I think what's so dynamic about what Peter is preaching here in Acts chapter 2 is that it's creating a church body that doesn't just think that, that, that their identity has just changed there and forever. They need to continue to be transformed as a result of what Jesus has done for them. Let me just point out four super quick examples from the text of how this early church in Acts chapter 2 believed that their identity was forever changed. Okay, In, uh, in verses 7 to 8, they have new experiences. Speaking in this new language, this supernatural ability. It says that they have new relationships. It says the, the Parsians and the Medes and the Elamites and the Arabs are now meeting in homes and gathering, and they've got these new relationships. It says that they have new realizations. And Peter is using Joel chapter 2 and Psalm chapter 16 to explain to these people new things that they had never understood before. And then they have a new response. It says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And then uh, they're baptized in verse 41. Uh, and then in the verses that Brad read for us, in verses 42 to 47, they have a new commitment to fellowship. Let me just ask you guys who have been following Jesus for a while. When you go to church, you have new experiences, new relationships, new realizations, and new responses. And that's what they have in Acts chapter 2. Because of their understanding that their, their faith, their salvation, is now going to bring about a lifetime of transformation. Not just a one-time decision that happened in Jerusalem on that first Pentecost holiday. So catalyst number one is that you have to change your thinking about your salvation. Becoming a Jesus follower doesn't mean you change in that moment and then never again. Salvation is a one-time event, but it's meant to continually expose us in church to new experiences, new relationships, new realizations, and new responses. I think with that mindset, we experience those new things so much more uh, than we just kind of phone it in and go through the motions. I appreciate your attention. Let's wrap it up with the second catalyst that I think that we see here in Acts chapter 2, and it's this. The congregation of this new church becomes committed to practices that celebrate and create new spiritual life. 
Let me just read a couple of them. In Acts 2.41, it says they're all getting baptized. Of course, baptism doesn't mean that our sins are clean. We talked about that this summer in a couple of sermons. Baptism is, is, is a, a reminder to us that just like Jesus died and rose from the dead, we go under the water and we come back out of the water because our new identity is that now that we are people that have been changed by the resurrection of Jesus. That's what baptism is all about. And these people are getting baptized because they want to celebrate new life, new spiritual life. It tells us in verses 42 and 46 that they're breaking the bread and we celebrate the Lord's Supper at least once a month here at Big Sky Christian Fellowship. And of course, when that bread is broken, it's a reminder that Jesus allowed his body to be broken so that he could be the Passover lamb so that we could all enter into this new spiritual life as the family of God. You guys see how their habits of this new church is celebrating and recreating for others this new spiritual life. Verses 44 and 45, it says they're selling things off and, and giving their possessions away to strengthen these new relationships so these people can, can be part of this fellowship. And uh, in verse 47, it says this commitment to new spiritual life is resulting in thousands who want to join this, that particular church. So I just want to ask you guys this question. Do you grasp that so many of the things that we do at church without really thinking about it are meant to remind us of the importance of our new spiritual life as well as to celebrate the new spiritual life of others? Communion, baptism, Bible study, worship. These are things that we're told to do so that we never lose sight of the new life that we've been given, as well as celebrating the new life of new people around us that are experiencing that. Let me close with a final illustration. Does anybody here work in the restaurant industry? Nod your head. We've got a lot of people from time to time that do. Have you guys ever heard of a family meal? A family meal is what a lot of fancy restaurants do before the uh, restaurant opens. It's a daily meal that the restaurant serves its employees just before peak hours. And sometimes these meals are prepared using leftover or unused ingredients. But many times the chef, many times the chef is trying to create something new that they might put on the menu that that chef has never ever created before. And so they want the input of the restaurant employees. In other words, great chefs don't just want four things on the menu that never change, right? Let's go to Best Burgers and you just want the same four things over and over. But, but the really great restaurants are coming up with new ingredients, new combinations, new things that have never been experienced, and they're eating it together as a staff so that there's, 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 they never cease to have that newness. Uh, in the same way, I think this church is dynamic in Acts 2 because they're trying to experience new things. They're celebrating the new life of the new believers. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptism and all these things that are continually reminding them that I used to be this way, but now I'm new, now I'm transformed. And I think what happens is sometimes in a church, after you've gone for 10 or 15 years, you just kind of lean away from the messiness of new people that are seeking out their faith. We just kind of hang out with the same crowd of people and we're, we're, we're kind of choosing McDonald's at that point, right? We're choosing the same four or five menu items. We're no longer that organization like that family meal and restaurant that's continually trying to experience new things together. Um, I'll just throw out there that um, I have a degree in literature and I have an advanced degree in Bible. 
And when I go to a Bible study or a small group on a Wednesday or a Saturday morning, there's a pretty low chance that I'm going to hear something that I've never read or heard before. But when I'm around other people that are processing the new things that they're learning, it softens my heart. It encourages me. keeps me pliable and loving the church and loving Jesus. I think there's some of you that need to hear that. Maybe it's a Wednesday night, maybe it's a Saturday morning, maybe it's a women's Bible study, and you just think to yourself, I've read that book. I know that author. I'm sick of going to small groups. It's not always for you. Sometimes it will be. Sometimes it's like here, it's to celebrate the new life that's, encouraged, that's occurring in the other people in the group. Sometimes it's to soften their heart in a beautiful way. Because new life is what? Church is all about. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and close our service with a final song or two. Let me just close with this. The church in Acts 2 experiences dynamic growth, not seen in most churches, yet there's nothing in it that we can't duplicate. I want you guys to think about the two catalysts in today's chapter. I want you to think about how your salvation should continually bring transformation and I want you to commit to habits that celebrate and facilitate new spiritual life. That's how we can have a church that's so much closer to the ideal that we see here in Acts 2.